John chapter 12. Once again, John chapter 12. I want to read the section from which I will be preaching, starting in verse 23. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain or fruit. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. He would not die by stoning, he would die by crucifixion. Now, all scripture is holy ground, or at least it ought to be to us. Well, it is, whether it is to us or not. It's holy because it comes from God. But there are some sections of scripture that, due to what is said and the weight of what is meant by what is said, some of those sections ought to cause our souls to stand at peculiar attention upon hearing them. I think this is one of those passages. It ought to cause peculiar sense of awe and attention by us. With an audience around him while in Jerusalem during the Passover season, Our Lord speaks some of the most seemingly perplexing words he spoke while on the earth. Not only that, but in the middle of John 12, 23 through 33, we are told a voice came from heaven. If the words of our Lord weren't perplexing enough, what in the world is this? A voice came from heaven. After explaining why the voice came and why it didn't come, our Lord announces to us how the Father will be glorified in what he is going to do in a few days and its extended results. Now my soul is troubled. Father, glorify thy name. A voice came from heaven. Now the judgment of this world. Now... The prince of this world will be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up, 
will draw all peoples or all men, all kinds of men, to myself. This he said, signifying by what death, kind of death he would die, by crucifixion. He goes from a troubled soul to resolve and determination. Kind of looked at that a little last week. We'll open that up again this week. And these words are packed with meaning. The words that I read, the words that we'll consider. The fact that it is the Passover season. It was this time of an annual festival. It adds, that adds peculiar importance to the events that are transpiring here, culminating in our Lord's death and resurrection. If you know your Old Testaments, you know that Passover is based on what God did with ancient Israel. He saved them out of Pharaohic bondage, okay? He passed over their houses and themselves, didn't judge them, but ended up saving them while judgment was occurring upon others. So God passed over the homes of his ancient people. He didn't judge them, and he ended up saving them from a wicked man, a ruler in ancient Egypt. But as the Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. If Paul was here, I'd like to ask him, what are you saying? He would say, what I just said. The first Passover was a preparation for the real one, Christ. That great saving event remembered and celebrated annually by ancient Jews is actually a type of Christ's greater work for us, saving us by being condemned in our place and saving us from our Pharaoh, enemy of God's people, our arch enemy, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Even that, I think, is connected to that ancient Passover. But we'll get there in the weeks to come because this is, this, I'm not going slow through this passage. This is one of those texts that has gripped me for years. And then again earlier this week, I got one of my favorite commentators on this text that I read in the early 90s um, said something I forgot. This is one of the hardest texts, especially verse 32, to explain as far as 31 and 32, as far as their meaning goes. And there are, are as many commentators as there are. There are that many views. So I'm going to go slow and try to spell out what I think it means in light of what the words themselves signify. OK, the words themselves signify Meaning. I think the words are pregnant with meaning, and the only way to understand them properly is to allow Scripture to speak to us in terms of what these things mean and not just this text. We don't want to read the Bible like unbelievers do. You know, they just read these verses, and what in the world does that mean? The Bible. The Word of God written contains both the Old and the New Testament, and the entirety of it ought to be used in the interpretation of parts, of its parts, like this. 
Some people say, no, you can't do that because the original audience couldn't do that. But they still read commentators, commentaries written by men 2,000 years later. Isn't that weird? You can't use the, uh, the rest of the Bible to interpret the Bible, but you can read men's thoughts about it. You can use dictionaries, lexicons, Hebrew dictionaries, and Greek dictionaries that were most of them were compiled by liberal Germans in the nineteenth in century. But you can't allow Scripture to bear light on Scripture. Uh, Fooey. We don't do that. Okay. No, can he do? We're, these words. Uh, you know, even the phrase son of man, if you've been here long enough, you know that when Jesus calls himself the son of man, boom, Daniel 7, right? I saw one like the son of man ascending up to the ancient of days and a kingdom was given to him and peoples so that they might serve him. Can you hear Daniel 7 in this passage? It's, it's there. There's other things you can hear in this passage that I don't, I need to get back to the notes because we'll... We'll never get to the text if we don't. Now, remember, there are Jews and Gentiles here. Remember the Gentiles came on the scene? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip and Andrew tell Jesus, and Jesus responds to this request of these, of these, uh, of these Gentiles, and he says this, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified, in verse 23. That's right after the Gentiles come uh, and the Gentiles tell Philip or Andrew or whichever one, and then they both went and tell Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, oh, good, Gentiles, what are you guys doing? He speaks these enigmatic, difficult words if you're not scripturally saturated. If your blood isn't Bibline, as Spurgeon said, you might not catch what's going on here. He uses that title, Son of Man, his favorite title for himself. It's rooted in the Old Testament. And he says, the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. Now, Good readers of John know that Jesus speaks of this hour, and it's not necessarily 60 minutes, okay? So we don't want to read it literally. It's a period of time. And it could be a period of time that's actually a long time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Is it only that the Son of Man is to be glorified in his death? Or can we say this, by, in his death and by virtue his death, resurrection, Ascension, current session, ruling the kingdom that is not of this world unto this day, the Son of Man in this hour is still being glorified. These are perplexing words. Not long after that, in verse 27, we looked at this last week, our Lord announces to us the state of his human soul. Now, my soul is troubled. He just said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he says, now he says, now my soul is troubled. I argued last week that this refers to part of the sorrow and grief of soul experienced by our Lord while on the earth. The prophet Isaiah predicting the sufferings and glory of our Lord way before our Lord became incarnate. He said this in Isaiah 53.3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I submitted last week that this is human grief based on the contemplation of what he was going to suffer, but he never sinned with this contemplation. Our Lord was 
at this moment contemplating not the fact that uh, his soul would be separated from his body, and he was troubled by that, but the fact that the deepest stroke that would pierce him would be the stroke that justice gave. He was contemplating become a, becoming a curse for the cursed. He was musing upon his damnation, exhausting death. This is what troubled his soul. And though troubled, he was yet without sin. And remember, our Lord then poses a question and answers it with a form of a question. Here's what it is. And what shall I say? My soul's troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. It's as if he were saying, shall I request of my father to help me abandon my mission? This is a real pressure on his soul. Contemplating being a wrath-bearing vicarious substitute for others, this pressure comes upon him and he's troubled and then he immediately checks it. That's unlike us, right? He immediately checks it. What shall I say? Abandon the mission? Father, help me abandon the mission? You know, if you're reading it this way, going, no, he's not going to say that, right? You're reading it right. He checks his soul quickly. Again, yet without sinning. Then, but for this purpose I came to this hour. So here is this. Remember I said he went from being a troubled soul to resolute determination. It didn't mean the cup of suffering and wrath and justice that was coming upon his head was going to be removed from him. We're going to see him later in this week agonize over the same thing as we move through the chapters of John's gospel. But he, he, he resolves. He says, no, no, no. This is why I came. I came to this hour, this period of time, with all the effects of it uh, based on the work itself. I came to this hour for the very purpose of suffering for my sheep. You know, the, the ancient prophets the New Testament tells us in many places, spoke about the sufferings and the glory of the Christ or the Messiah or the anointed servant of the Lord that would come in the future. This is the future in light of the prophetic past. The prophet said this day would come, and now this day is here. This one is acquainted with grief and sorrow to overcome grief and sorrow, to experience it without sinning, to uphold the law of God in the midst of intense sufferings for us and for our salvation, because we don't do that. Then he has this prayer request, Father, glorify your name. Kind of, you know, at least semi-triumphalistic, right? Like, let's get on with the mission kind of thing. Now, I don't want to overstate that because... Now my soul is troubled. We don't want to minimize that in our Lord. It was real trouble, agitation of soul yet without sin, tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. But now has this, Father, glorify your name. Use my name to make thy name, use me, to make thy name glorious over all the earth. 
this is what he's saying, much more, make much of your name through me. Daniel saw in a prophetic vision the future service of the Son of Man and the fact that the future service of the Son of Man would produce, would produce servants of the Son of Man. I am that Son of Man. That which was future to Daniel is being fulfilled in me. I am here to gain a kingdom with people of all nations to serve me. Glorify your name. Then we come to John 12, 28, B and following. That was a review from last week, 27 and 28, A. And I need to remind you of some things before we look at these words. Here's the words we're going to look at today. Then a voice came from heaven, 28B, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw peoples to myself. This he said signifying by what death he would die. Now, that's what we're going to consider, those words in the broader context. Now, the broader context of the Gospel of John is important as well because John gives us, at the end of the Gospel of John, he tells us, here's why I wrote what I wrote, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life in his name. Okay, so he's writing for evangelistic purposes. He wants people to understand who this Jesus character, now for us, you know, almost 2,000 years ago, who he is. And he tells us who he is. <clears throat> he's the Christ, the one spoken about in the prophets that would come, be anointed, suffer, and enter glory. But he's also this other title, the Son of God. We'll look at that later because notice, Father. He addresses heaven as Father. And then at the end of the gospel, the Son of God. So whatever these words mean, okay, they are calculated by John, the intent by John in containing this story for us and saying what he says about what transpired is so that we would understand who Jesus is for the well-being of our souls. So um, putting some context here from the passage itself, notice verse 23, the hour has come. The time for his sufferings unto death and resurrection is soon to come about, and he knew it. So it's not like these things aren't new things. What? I have to do that? What? I have to do this? Okay. The Son of God is exposing in the words that he speaks his intellect, his mind, what he knew was going to happen based on 
the prophets of the Old Testament, the voice from heaven, and whatever intellectual endowments he received mysteriously inside of his human soul. It's a weird thing to think about, right? Son of man will be glorified. He will bear fruit due to his death and resurrection. He will have some who serve him. And he just called them to a life of self-sacrificial service, promising that those who serve him will be uh, with him and honored by his father. The hour has come. Then we read these words. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So whatever this voice from heaven is, it comes right after the words from the lips of our Lord, Father, glorify your name. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now this is John's commentary on what transpired, or John's uh, uh, penning of what transpired. A voice, an audible sound signifying God the Father was heard. That's weird, at least it should be. If you didn't think that was weird, I'm trying to tell you, this is we- weird in the sense of, this is odd. This doesn't, doesn't happen all the time. You know, you don't walk around, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. I say that because the voice was heard immediately after these words were spoken by our Lord. These words signify a revelation, words that could be heard, revealing something about who Jesus is. He had just said, Father, glorify thy name. I have both glorified it and will Glorifying it. So here is Jesus calling God his Father. Now we're readers of John. We, hopefully, we want to be good readers of John. When Jesus identifies himself as the Son of the Father, what happens? Not good stuff, right? The people back then are going, you, you, What are you doing? You can't call God your own father, making yourself out to be God. Recall these words. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. That's John 5, 17. John tells us in the next verse that one of the reasons the Jews sought to kill him at this point is this, because he said that God was his father, making himself equal to God. Father, glorify thy name. There could have been some people that are... They're going, dude, you've said this before. And these people, they're not going to go for that. They're not going to like it. This is not going to end well for you. Stop calling God your father. For a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. The religious, this that's John 10. The religious leaders understood our Lord's claim. There's something unique about this father-son language claim. There's, when he addresses this father, it's 
God, and yet he assumes he is God's son. He is a son in relation to the Father. I'm saying this voice from heaven is signifying some sort of unique relation between this incarnate one and God the Father. Now, uh, believers call God our Father, right? Are we natural sons and daughters? Or are we forgiven, adopted sons and daughters? We're forgiven, adopted sons and and daughters, right? Believers aren't naturally sons and daughters of God, heirs of eternal life coming out of the womb, okay? That is a grace that comes upon us. We We go from being enemies to friends. We become sons of God, by grace, and we're forgiven. This is not the father-son relationship between Jesus and his heavenly father that's being depicted here. When Jesus calls God his father, it is not because he's a forgiven son. It's not because he's, he's adopted by virtue of the of somebody's work on his behalf, like us. We're sons by grace. This son of the Father is son by nature. It's just his identity. Also, in verse 23, our Lord had said, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, our question is this. Father, glorify thy name. The hour has come for the Son of Man to, glorify, to be glorified. The question is, who is to be glorified here? Is it the Son of the Man or the name of the Father? Is it the Son of Man or is it the Father? The Son of Man or the Father? Uh, by the way, the glory, which I take here to signify creaturely and worshipful recognition of who the Son of Man is, caused by the work of the Son of Man, is also, at the same time, creaturely and worshipful recognition of the Father, who is the Father of the Son. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Father is going to be glorified as well as the Son. It is by virtue of the Son of Man's work that the Son of Man is glorified. Creaturely worship, creaturely praise, creaturely recognition of his true identity will be rendered based on what he does for sinners. And not only that, but he will be, he will be identified as the natural son of the eternal father. Therefore, the eternal son of the eternal father. See what's happening here? Jesus is giving a teensy glimpse into what Christians subsequent to the New Testament time called the Trinity, and the incarnation of the Son of God. The Father is not Father if he has no natural Son. The voice says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This refers to the Father being glorified by the work of the Son of Man. And it goes two directions, right? It goes in the past. I have both glorified it, my name, and will glorify it again. 
at least the incarnation, the obedience, the ministry, the miracles, all of those glorified the name of the Father or caused creatures to recognize a unique relation between this son of that father. You remember some of, uh, was it Mary or Martha? I think it was Martha. Great testimony. You're the Christ, the Son of God, or whatever she said, and then something less than orthodox, not too many verses later. And I said, let's not be too hard on these people. How about Peter today in the public reading? It's like, Peter, come on. You need to hear our pastor's sermon. You should have known more by then. What are you? Slightly cowardice at times? You know what Peter would say. He just read it. Yeah, that happened. I'm, yeah, I'm a coward sometimes. So there's, there's more to these words than the face value uh, of them. We, and we're trying to dig into what's happening here. So we, these words refer to the past. I've both glorified it, incarnation, uh, the s- sufferings up until that point, miracles, ministry, uh, uh, ministry among uh, sinners, So these reveal that the Son is Son of the Father, and they reveal the Father as Father of the Son. And some had come to believe this in the then recent past. You know, we've, uh, I I mentioned Martha, there there are others that started to connect dots. It's it's not, you know, it's not a full-blown understanding, mature reflection that we might read of in Paul's epistles. The Gospels recount an era in the history of this world in which the Lord was on the earth. The the, The events in the Gospels happen before the epistles are written. The epistles were written by the apostles who had this special endowment from heaven, a gift of the Spirit, that gave them an ability to, to, to remember what Jesus said, to interpret what Jesus said, and to draw out implications for the future. That was a special endowment on the apostles. That's why we call their writings the written word of God. It's the word of God on the word of God's ministry. And it's mature, apostolic, deep theological reflection. But some people who were living while Jesus was speaking connected dots. Some people probably connected dots later. The ministry of our Lord in the past had brought fame to the name of the Father and the The words from heaven indicate that he's going to do the same in the future. So I have this paraphrase of what I think is going on here. Not only while you are on the earth in the days of your sorrows and grief have I glorified my name, but I will glorify it due to your sufferings, death, Resurrection, ascension, and session from heaven. I'm going to make much of the name of Jesus in the future. Sinful creatures from all over the world will come to know God as Father of the Son by virtue of the work of the Son. Now that's kind of a headful, mouthful. It's a lot right there. But 
I think this, we could say this. In one sense, what the voice from heaven is assuring these people of is that in 2023, on Lord's Day, January 15th, in Lancaster, California, somebody would babble out words from this text and people would receive it and go, wow, the Father is the Father of the Son who became one of us for us and for our salvation. Stop preaching, let's sing. Something like that. But notice well John's commentary on the various views of the people concerning what was heard. John's very clear. A voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it, heard what? The voice that came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard that said, no, that's not what we heard. Basically, said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Now, this is fascinating. Let's look at verses 28a and c very carefully in relation to verse 29. Here's 28a. Father, glorify your name. Then immediately after Jesus said that, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. There's not like... Father, glorify thy name, and then an hour break. It's, it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see the connection. The incarnate Son of God in a, you know, the form of a prayer. Father, glorify your name. Full stop. Immediately. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Instead of stopping... And contemplating what just happened, the people refused to connect the dots, or at least to try to, at least at that moment. I don't want to be too hard on these people, okay? The Son of Man is clearly Jesus, the Christ, the anointed servant of the Lord, the one promised in the Old Testament, and having come, the Son of God. And he once again calls God his father. How many of these people were there in John 10 or John 5, the other times when Jesus calls God his own father, or they recognize that he had done that uh, previously? How many of these people were there? I don't know. Some of them probably, certainly the disciples and probably religious leaders, because it seems that sometimes, quite often, when the religious leaders are going toe-to-toe with our Lord, it's not a new group of religious leaders every single time, Okay. So, so people knew what was going on here. Here's another time when Jesus is calling God his father, and immediately after doing so, a voice came from heaven. Father, glorify thy name. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the voice says something pertaining to our incarnate Lord. In other words, we can learn something about Jesus by virtue of this voice from heaven. 
This is not an everyday occurrence on the earth, a voice from heaven revealing something about the Son while he was on the earth. If you know your Bibles, you know this is the second of three times something similar to this occurs during the life and ministry of our Lord. All three occurrences, though, when this voice from heaven occurs, all three of them are calculated as revealing something to us about the unique relation between this one, the Son of God, and the one he addresses as Father. Okay, the first time a voice comes from heaven revealing something about Jesus while on the earth is in Matthew 317 at our Lord's baptism. Listen to these words. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, uniquely loved son, unique son, therefore uniquely loved, the eternal son of the eternal father, but he's incarnate, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So at least John the Baptist, who baptized our Lord, heard that voice. Then in John 12, 29, in our text, it's the second time this odd occurrence happens where a voice comes from heaven signifying something about the son who is incarnate in relation to the father. The last time recorded for us in Matthew 17, 5, at what the, the, we call the Lord's transfiguration, some sort of pre-eschatological glimpse into the eschatological glory of, of our Savior. I, I don't know how to explain it any better than that. If you don't know what those words mean, don't worry about it. Listen to this, though. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. That's the voice there. Up on this mountain, at least the disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, heard that voice, hear him. Now, they didn't say, the text doesn't tell us, oh, then Peter, James, and John said, it thundered, or an angel has spoken. Instead, it says this, and when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. I submit to you, that's what these people should have done. They should have been awestruck and said nothing, basically. It's a much better response than the one in our text. God produced sound in the form of words to signify something mysteriously awe-inspiring. Now, let me say that again, because these are very careful words. God produced sound in the form of words to signify something mysteriously awe-inspiring. We want to be careful here. The Father's voice came from heaven. The Father has lungs. He has a voice box. He has a mouth and lips. We're not Mormons. Okay, the sound is actually a creaturely medium through which revelation is coming to us. 
Let me say it again. God produced sound in the form of words. You ever heard God condescends to our level? He's using creaturely words and a vocabulary that the audience should have known and some of them did. To signify sign, words are signs that signify things. What is the thing that's being signified here? I think ultimately, we've, we've, the father has a son whose natural sonship is not like our adoptive sonship, who has become one of us, assumed flesh for us and for our salvation. The son of man is the son of the father, and the agent through whom glory has come and will come to the Father. Now, I know sometimes people like to cons- put themselves back in that world. Um, we'll do it just for a minute. Consider being there for a moment. Would you have said it was thunder or it was an angel? Because those are two options people had and two options they utilized. Obviously, not all the people there spoke. It doesn't tell us what the disciples were thinking at that moment. They were obviously there. Or would you have said, wow, we're getting a crash course in a fully worked out Trinitarian and incarnational theology. If you don't know what those words are, don't don't worry about it. The point was, I don't think you would have done that. Jesus And the Father, the Son and the Father are saying everything there needs to be said about the relation between the two eternal persons, the Father and the Son. They're not saying everything. There's no one verse that says everything that God has said about the Trinity, the Incarnation. We we have a symphony of texts, okay? The Son in relation to the Father and the Son in relation to us as man, is a portrait that's found throughout the entirety of Scripture, a glimpse here, a glimmer there, a prophetic vision here and there, the incarnation itself, the explanation of it, and its, and its mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. I don't think you'd sit there going, wow, Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Chalcedonian definition about Christ is being explained to us here. No, this is just a a snippet. Just a little, little glimmer of hope for us and of revelation concerning who this Christ Son of God is. He's not just a, a prophet endowed with power. Don't, don't. Jesus is just like all the prophets before him, just like the apostles. Lucky, God gave him a whole lot of power. He is not merely a uniquely endowed servant. He is the quintessential servant. He's actually God the Word who became flesh, never ceasing to be God the Word in becoming flesh. I think the best response would have been to remain silent, so if we're trying to put ourselves back there, zip your lips. Don't say anything. You'll say something dumb, probably. 
Like, if you think about it, what they people said was, it's like, really? It thundered? A voice came from heaven saying, at least it was clear to John or somebody else that was there that you know, told John about it, if it wasn't clear to John. But it said, this voice came saying what it said immediately after, Father, glorify thy name. Can't you see the connection? You might disagree with what Jesus claims in terms of his relation to God as his Father, but how can you deny the voice? Well, they weren't denying the voice, they were recasting it. Notice what they were doing. They're recasting this voice into creatureliness. Thunder or an angel? I think they should have been silent. But not only did they not remain silent, in verse 34 we are told this, the people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now, if you're reading the passage, you're going, come on. You don't get it yet? He's the Son of Man. You, you got your eschatology of the Lord's servant from the Old Testament. You got it wrong. You guys need to go back to school. They had just heard him refer to himself as the Son of Man. And he did that quite often. Though we should not expect too much of the people who heard the voice. Their responses indicate that their souls needed help. Their minds were darkened. That they were unwilling, and I'll add, unable to see in our Lord the true light that he was and is. The torch Bearer of revelation from God. The light of the world. Remember he called himself that? Back in chapter 1, we learned that John the Baptist bore witness to this light, not himself, but to Jesus, this brightly burning revealer of God, we could call him. It's borrowing symbolism from the Old Testament. He was in the world... During the days of his flesh, and the world was made by him, but not by his flesh, but by his wordness, right, or divinity. Remember the words? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is called light, that to which John the Baptist bore witness. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Who is this son of man? You know, what we're told in chapter 1 is happening here in chapter 12. He came to his own, they wouldn't receive him. They wouldn't identify him for who he really was. They got their Christology was all messed up. Thinking back upon our text, we see the word who became flesh claiming to be the son of man, claiming God as his father, and a voice from heaven confirming these things. He claims to be the son of man. He calls God his father, and heaven confirms it. Yep, that's who you are, and I am your father. 
And while that's happening, spiritual darkness is brooding in the souls of some who were present. You know, you read the older commentaries, they take the people, the crowds, as kind of like a, a parable of unbelief. That we can put our own selves in those sandals at one point. All of us didn't see the glorious Savior for who he is. So if we're back there again, this great revelatory moment was being played out in their presence and they didn't get it. Father, glorify thy name. I have both glorified it and I'll glorify it again. This is revelation from God occurring in their life experience in the presence of many witnesses. They didn't get it. So, this ought to teach us at least one lesson. Being there, seeing things with our own eyes, hearing things with our own ears, does not ensure proper understanding of things. You know how people say, if I was there, they were there. Look at poor Peter. He was there. He was one of Jesus' best friends. I am not his disciple. Yes, you are. Coward! Uh, that's, don't read Peter that way. You should put your head down. Thank you, Lord, because I'm sometimes cowardly and I don't stand up for your name. But you stood up for the glory of God and the law of God and took the juice for me. You were condemned in my place. Uh, give me grace. These people had the incarnate Son of God in their midst and a voice from heaven, and those things alone did not produce in them faith in Christ. Now, they should have bowed down and worshipped. Either they are the most blind and sinful people who have ever existed, or their blindness and sinfulness must be changed into sight and faith. Recall these words before judging these people too harshly. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon, Peter answered and said, remember the words, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, you Simon Barjona, uh, endowed with goodness and grace are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So, don't judge these people too harshly because seeing, hearing, and being there doesn't effect or cause right thinking about the events that are transpiring. We're so bad off 
We need more than a voice from heaven. We need more than just the incarnation as an undefined act of God. We need more than just bare historical facts. We need more than divinely interpreted interpretations of those bare historical facts. You can't just read the Bible and conclude, oh, I'm a Christian. Things have to be revealed, not just external to you, but internally. And here, Jesus says, my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. So an external revelation of who our Lord is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of Man, does not in itself convince anyone. Now, this is, is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Father, glorify thy name. I have both it, glorified it and will glorify it. That's pretty clear. You have the incarnate Son of God. You have this weird voice from heaven signifying there is a Father of the Son. People heard that stuff. And then attributed it to thunder in an angel. I think we need to learn from this that our plight is much worse than we sometimes realize. We need the opening of our inward soulish eyes and ears. Something is so wrong with us that it, even when people that even when people were there during the days of our Lord's ministry on earth he went mostly unnoticed as to his true identity he only had a small group of people who when he was here got it There's just a small remnant around this messianic figure, this servant of the Lord. If you know the Old Testament, you know I'm borrowing language from the Old Testament that talks about the servant of the Lord coming and having a small remnant of believers around him. But the the Old Testament also speaks about this, this servant of the Lord that comes to Jerusalem and that upon his work, when he enters into glory, the word about him goes all over the world. That's in the prophets, too. You ever wondered why Paul says, to the Jew first and then to the Greek? It's the divine plan. The Jewish Messiah comes, and then by virtue of his work, the name of father and son gets all over the earth and creaturely prays, acknowledging God, as Father, Son, we could add Holy Spirit, is wrought in the souls of people all over the place. Now, why did this voice occur? Just very briefly. Jesus answered and said, This voice, verse 30, did not come because of me, but for your sake. Similar words our Lord speaks 
elsewhere. Like in the raising of Lazarus, I said this, what I did in the form of prayer, um, but it was for your sake. This puts their responses to the voice in actually a worse light, doesn't it? The voice isn't a teaching tool for me. It's revelation for you. Ah, thunder, an angel. So when Jesus says, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake, even that should have gotten under their skin like, wait a minute. You didn't need to hear, I have both glorified it and glorified it again. You already knew that? Yeah. So it came as a teaching opportunity for us to learn something Yes, the voice occurred to teach them, but they concluded, no, it's just lightning. It's just an angel. Now, I don't want to overdo that because they're they're Jews most likely that are saying this. And lightning is sometimes associated with grand revelatory acts of God, especially like on Mount Sinai. Uh, and, and also, angel, angels as me, created mediums, me, uh, means through which God has something to say to us, that happens as well. But still, it's not, this isn't a good response. The voice came not for me, but for you. I didn't learn anything by virtue of the voice. New. I already knew what the voice, what the meaning of the words uh, uh, meant before they were weirdly sounded in your ears. This is for you. But they didn't benefit from it, uh, uh, at least um, f- f- not yet. Heaven was confirming the identity of our Lord while he was on the earth. <coughs> And earth, or earthlings, were calling heaven's voice as coming from thunder or merely an angel. So they misinterpreted the voice, the voice that was given for them to learn something by virtue of it. Now let's see if we can put some things together and I'll close. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now my soul is troubled. Father, glorify your name. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now is the judgment of this world. This is how... Glory is going to come to the Son of Man and to the name of the Father, the judgment of this world, whatever it means. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. If you take the verse 29 and verse 30 out of there, and you just read verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then jump to verse 31. You learn in verses 31 and 32 just how the Son 
is going to bring glory to the Father and himself. Judgment of the world. Casting out of the prince of this world. The ruler of this world. And the drawing of all kinds of peoples to himself. You think that drawing is for the purpose of judging? I I don't think so. I don't think that's it at all. Whatever these three things mean in uh, 31 and 32, they're the means by which the Son gets glory and the Father gets glory through the same work. They're the effects wrought by virtue of the Son's work. The judgment of the world, the casting out of the enemy, the archenemy of God and God's people, and the drawing of sinners to Christ for salvation. So all of that to say, amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Please help us. This, these are deep waters that we're in, very precious truths. Um, the words themselves are, are, are enough, but words signify, words point to things, to meaning. These words point ultimately to how you're going to get glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through the work of Christ. Help us to know these things better. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.